Romans chapter 2, starting to read at verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Uh, We're in Romans chapter 2. And tonight, somewhat surprisingly, I guess, as a Christian minister, I'm going to suggest um, we all become Jewish. No, don't panic. Um, I'm not suggesting a a mass ritual that we all engage in. I'm not, um, I haven't got to seduce my Madonna and her Kabbalah or Kabbalah. Uh, But rightly understood... Uh, Our Bible passage tonight is going to explain that we need to become a Jew. Now, we need to let the Bible redefine what we might think about that, how we use that term. But we need to do that. That is something for all of us, as we'll see tonight. Now, let's get a bit of context. Uh, We're in the book of Romans. We've been here for about a month now. And uh, we've seen that the main point of this book is that the whole world needs the gospel. The world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ because in the gospel, righteousness is revealed. That is a right standing with God. No one has it naturally, but it is a gift available by trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you could think of it a a bit like this. Uh, Here's a coat my father bought me uh, when I was 22 years old. And it's just about still hanging together. It even fits me. It was big at the time. The, um, uh, we met for, I've just moved to London, 22. We met for lunch one day uh, in the city, and uh, it was about December. And he said, you look freezing. I said, I am. He said, why haven't you got a coat? I said, I'm poor. He said, let me buy you a coat. What a great man. So he bought me a gift. I was cold. I needed covering. And here it is, you know, just about. There it is. Does the job. Keeps you warm. It's wool. It's super. 
In the gospel is the gift we need. We lack righteousness. We are facing God's judgment. We need a gift. We need Jesus Christ to clothe us in his righteousness, which happens when we place our faith in the gospel. For the last few weeks, then, we're in this big section, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul is making it very, very clear to one and all that everyone needs the gospel because no one is righteous. No one. Not a single person in the world has a right standing with the Lord God. And he's uh, sort of worked his way through different groups. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, it's sort of, you could say, pagan man. Those who are obviously rejecting the way God uh, says the world should be, how they should live. And he says to sort of pagan people in sort of gross immorality, you have rejected God and you're facing his wrath, his anger. Uh, Last week, slightly different, the first half of chapter two, you could say he targets a moral man. Those who think they live a pretty decent life, not like the pagans, they are moral and upstanding. And he says to them, well, you may think you're a little bit better, but you're not. You still really do the same things. And ultimately, you've rejected God and you're facing his anger. It's a pagan man, a sort of moral man. And this week we come to Jewish man, a third group. You can imagine how uh, someone might uh, have reacted, a Jewish man of the time, reading this. Uh, Okay, yes, I'm with you, with you. Yes, those pagans, they are gross. Uh, These sort of moral upstanding people Well, they think they live a good life, but they don't know God at all. But we're the Jews. So, Paul, you know, your your accusations, they don't work on us. We're the Jews. We're different. And Paul says, no. You've rejected the Lord God, and you're facing his anger. You are exactly the same as all these others. Because no one is righteous. Everyone needs the gift of righteousness which is revealed in the gospel. So this evening we're thinking really about Jews. Now there are two mistakes we could uh, make straight away when we hear that. The first would be to uh, think, oh my goodness, this is a bit strange, uh, uh, a bit on PC, a bit perhaps, is he going to be really anti-Semitic and say anti-Jewish things? I think I'll walk out at that point. Well, no. No, because Paul's point in this passage is not to single out Jewish people and say, you're different. His point is to say, Jewish people, you're the same. You are exactly the same as everyone else. You are not different. So it's not in any sense anti-Semitic. He's saying Jews are the same as everyone else. And then I guess the second mistake we can make is to say, well, it's all about Jews. I'm not a Jew. It's not for me. Well, it is. It is. Because as I said, there's a sense in which we all need to become Jewish. Look down with me at verse, uh, verse 29 of chapter 2. We'll just jump ahead. We'll get to it later on. But just so you know where we're going. Uh, verse 29 of chapter 2. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Paul is going to redefine redefine radically what it means to be Jewish. It's not about who your parents are, not about whether you keep certain food laws, not about whether you celebrate Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's not about those things. You are a Jew. 
says Paul, in the true biblical meaning, if you have a circumcised heart. What that means we'll come to a little later on. Sounds painful. It's not, but we'll come to that. So really tonight we're thinking, who is a true Jew? Who is a true Jew? Uh, Two things that don't make you a Jew, biblically, and one that does. At the first, this will not make you a true biblical Jew, having the law. It's in this first section, uh, really verses uh, 17 down to 24. You You can hear the sort of Jewish people saying, but Paul, we have the law. He says, but you don't keep it. But you don't keep it. Now, we're thinking here about the Old Testament law, the sort of instructions that God gave the Israelites on Mount Sinai, so the Ten Commandments and other laws which spill out of them. So the Old Testament law. And uh, Paul says, basically, it's a wonderful thing. That law which God gave you in the past, that is a wonderful thing. It is a huge privilege to have that. But you just don't do it. It's a bit like saying... um, you know, I have a box at Wembley Stadium. It's an enormous hospitality box. It has prawn sandwiches and everything you'd want from a posh director's hospitality box. Oh, great. Do you ever go? No. Never been once. Well, fat lot of good then. It is to you. That's Paul's point. We have the law. Do you use it? Do you do it? Do you keep it? No. Well, it's a fat lot of good then. It's very wonderful having such a thing. But if you don't keep it, if you don't use it, well, it does you no good. It's a no, it's a no blessing to you if you fail to keep it. Let's work through his argument. Uh, verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, now look, he's saying that basically look, I've dealt with the out-and-out pagans, I've dealt with the moral people, now you. You think you're different, aren't you, the Jewish people? Now you, I come to you now. If you call yourself a Jew and four things, you rely on the law, You brag about your relationship to God. You know his will. You approve of what is superior. Why? Because you're instructed by the law. And yeah, those things are okay. That's true. You you do know God. You do know his will. That's all right. Four more things. If you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, again, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, well, that's true. It's basically saying, yeah, yeah, you have the law. You have, you put it another way, you have the light for yourselves. You shine the light on other people to help teach them. That's all right. That's okay. But, four questions. You then, you've got all these blessings. You try and teach others. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Four pretty cutting questions. And then uh, the last one really is is a statement and not a question originally. I don't know why it's put, put as a question mark here. But the conclusion is verse 23. You who brag about the law, you dishonor God by breaking it. You think you're you think you're great. You're bragging or boasting is perhaps a better term. You boast about having the law. You dishonor God because you're associated with him. It's very strong, the language here. You could perhaps think, I mean, this again is a strong picture, but you could perhaps think um, uh, uh, soldiers who uh, have been convicted of being involved in 
um, inhumane treatment of prisoners at Abu Ghraib prison, you know, sort of standing them up, making them hold electric wires, putting them in naked human pyramids, that sort of thing. And they're there, you know, with their thumbs up to the cameras and are holding their guns. I mean, barbaric treatment of, okay, prisoners of war, but barbaric treatment. And, uh, you know, it's funny. when you see them come before their courts martial, they're saying, yeah, but we're American soldiers. And I guess the overwhelming public opinion against them was, you're a disgrace to our nation. Now, uh, other nations have done similar, but in that case, you know, we're American soldiers, aren't you proud? No, you actually, you're a disgrace because you're saying that you're doing that as an American and the public opinion says no. Paul is saying here, look, you, you know, you're, you're dishonoring God. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Yes, you have the law. Yes, it's a privilege. But you're dishonoring God because you're not keeping it. It's very strong. So Paul says, yeah, you've, you have the law, but it's only ever been external to you. It's not, it's not changed you. It hasn't transformed you. It's just out there as a duty you try and keep, but you don't. And you really dishonor God because you're associated with him. They had the light. They shone it on other people, but they never shone it into their own lives, so it transformed them. It's a disgrace, says Paul. Okay, so what? So what? History lesson, so what? Well, two main things, I think. Uh, the main one is uh, Paul's main point in the whole of this section. Look, Jews, even you, no one is righteous. No one has a right standing before the Lord. Not even you. No one. All of us need the gospel. Every single person. Now, many of us here know that. Have you realized that, though? If you're not yet a Christian, have you realized that? It's no good saying, well, there are some pretty awful people, but I'm all right. Do you see what this section does in Paul's argument? It says, look, comparisons are no good to you. <laughs> comparisons don't work because the moral man can look at the pagan man and say, I'm better than him. And the Jewish man can look at the moral man and say, oh, I'm better than you. But Paul says, it doesn't do any of you any good. Comparisons never work. How are you relating to God? See, we can all play that game. I mean, pretty much everyone in the world can find someone worse than them and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as him. I had a great quote the other day, Robert Mugabe. Robert Mugabe said, oh, the British people have got rid of Tony Blair, that wicked, evil man. I don't know how they endured a tyrant like him for so long. Well, thanks, Bob. Um, you know, how do you... Now, what's he doing? He's playing politics, or does he really convince himself in his own mind that? But you see, we can all play the game. We can all pretend there's someone worse than us. And Paul is saying, don't go there. Don't compare yourself to another. No one is righteous before the Lord God. No one has a right relationship with him because no one obeys him and honors him as they should. That's the main point. Uh, secondly, and this is a lesser point, I guess, but for those of us here who are Christians who uh, love the Bible, there's a warning for us here, perhaps particularly those of us involved in teaching um, up front or small groups or Sunday school or internationals or one-to-one -one in any capacity. For myself, the warning is pretty sharp here. We need to be very careful that, or in the languages that Paul puts it, we never, 
We never boast in God. We never boast about knowing his will. We don't boast that we can guide the blind, instruct the foolish, but fail to instruct ourselves. That's pretty cutting, I think. So for myself, you know, I read that this week. And so I've started to pray, Lord, please, don't let me teach something to anyone else that I do not teach to myself. Please don't let me do that. I don't want to sort of go down this path of hypocrisy, of boasting about knowing you, but actually never, letting, never doing anything, never actually obeying you. Please don't let me be a hypocrite. Lord God, please, um, please would your word humble me. Would it break me? Would it force me to my knees? Would it change me? And that's why we sung that song just before uh, studying the Bible. It's such a wonderful song. Lord, would your word shape and fashion us in your likeness? Would it transform us? Would it change us? And uh, I guess any of us, in any sense, involved in instructing another person, or just any Christian who claims to love the Bible, who claims to go out to the non-Christian world and say, you've got it wrong here. We need to be careful that we've instructed our own hearts and aren't guilty of this sort of hypocrisy that Paul is speaking of. Having God's law, it doesn't make you a Jew. It doesn't make you a genuine believer. In the same way, knowing the Bible as a Christian, if you know the Bible, rather, it doesn't make you a genuine Christian. It's no good sort of boasting in this book, but dishonoring the Lord. So perhaps a warning for many of us. There's the first little thing, and that doesn't make you a Jew, not a genuine believer. Having the Lord doesn't make, you, doesn't make a difference. A second thing which would fail to make you a genuine Jew, that is a genuine biblical believer, is um, being circumcised. So here's the second cry that goes up, really, verses 25 to uh, 27. You could say, uh, the Jewish uh, uh, protagonist could say, but Paul, I've been circumcised. And he says a couple of things, really. He says, well, you still break the law, and you haven't been circumcised where it matters. Now, this may, be, this may seem a slightly convoluted argument. Um, I'm circumcised, so God won't judge me. And of course, we need to understand the Old Testament background, which is circumcision is a sign, a sign given to Abraham and then to all, uh, all males who descended from him. A sign really saying, we are committed, we commit to follow you and keep your covenant. It is a sign of that. Now, you might ask yourself, it's a pretty full-on sign. Um, why, why not a sort of loyalty card? Like you get, a, you know, why not a, a tattoo even? You know, that would do the job, it's permanent. Why such a bloody graphic symbol? What it seems to be in Genesis, the point is, look, when you commit yourself to follow God, it is serious. And if you fail to, it's bloody. There's a penalty. See, one says it's a contract. You could think of it like this, perhaps, a modern equivalent. Uh, if you went to uh, buy a house, or, um, uh, yeah, buy a house is a good thing, or rent a house, and uh, you, you had a look around, and you signed a contract. There it is. You sign your uh, contract to buy the house, or you sign your tenancy agreement. But then you fail to put any money in. You don't, you don't ever pay a bean. Well, quite rightly, the, uh, the owner or the, um, uh, if it's a purchase, uh, the seller would say, you've signed this, 
but you've broken it. Your signature is worthless, and now you must pay a financial penalty. Well, that's the sort of thing that's going on with, uh, with the argument here. Paul is saying to them, yes, you were circumcised as a sign that you were going to follow God and keep his covenant, but you've broken it. Your circumcision is worthless. A signature on a contract which you've ripped up is worthless, and there's a penalty to pay. Now, I don't know, not many of us probably think those terms of circumcision. Maybe there's a few who think that way about baptism. Uh, Maybe some who think that, well, I was baptized as a child. Uh, That makes me uh, a Christian. Uh, Therefore, God will honor me. You know, you may think, well, you know, when I get to heaven, I haven't done a great deal, but I'll I'll dig around, I'll root around, and here it is. Here's my sort of baptism certificate from when I was age six months, and uh, that'll do. And, uh, of course, this argument is exactly the same. No good. Have you honored the Lord? Have you kept his law? It's no good saying I've got a sign from many years ago. It does you no good. So here are two external marks that do not make anyone a genuine Jew. Having the law, being circumcised. In this sense of how Paul is defining it, they don't make you truly a believer in God, a genuine Jew. But then you get a bolt from the blue, really, which really would have shook up his Jewish hypocritical readers. A real bolt from the blue. Verse 26. Paul effectively says, look, you've spent, um, you know those pagans who you feel superior to? Well, the pagans, if they keep the law, they're better than you, and they'll judge you. Verse 26, 27. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. It's slightly convoluted, but do you see what he's saying? Those out-and-out pagans, if they keep the law, they'll judge you. And the fact that you've got all the, the fact you're bringing me the other, these other things, circumcision law to the table, it makes no difference. Now, pause. Question. Paul, for two chapters now, you've been saying that no one can keep the law, that no one can honor God rightly. Not one. And now you're suggesting that there are some pagans who can keep the law. Do you understand that question? So you can see where Paul's argument is going. The section ends up in chapter 3, verse 20. He's going to say, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. Paul, how then in verse 26 can you say that there are people who will keep the law? I don't get it. Your whole argument is, it's not possible. No one can do it. Who are these people who can, verse 26? How can they keep your law? Answer. By the Spirit. By trusting in Jesus Christ so that he gives them his Holy Spirit. That's the answer. Verses 28 and 29. A man is not a Jew if he's one if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical, no. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So here's the third thing. Here is how we can become 
a true believer, or in Paul's language here, a real Jew, one who genuinely has a relationship with God. We need God's spirit to transform our hearts. We need a circumcised heart. Now, what's that? Well, it's clearly a metaphor. Um, It's not talking about a literal thing here. It's a metaphor. So what does he mean? Well, what is circumcision? Circumcision circumcision is a sign of commitment to keep God's law. Okay. What's a heart? Well, pretty obviously a thing that beeps away. But biblically, what is a heart? Biblically, the heart is the control center. It's the cockpit of your life. So not as we sort of think of heart as the place of the emotions. Heart, emotions, head for thoughts. In biblical thought, the, the Bible is both. It is the control center of your life. So if your heart is set on money or career or sex or security, then you will chase after those things. The heart is the control center. Where it sets you, you'll pursue it. Okay. So what's the circumcised heart? It is a heart which doesn't just try out of duty to keep God's law but wants to do it because the heart loves the Lord. A circumcised heart is fixed upon him and wants to keep a law, keep the law, just because it loves God. So one with a circumcised heart says, I'm not trying to keep the law in, in order to earn anything. I love my Lord and I just want to keep this law to please him. That's the circumcised heart. So you could ask the question another way. Paul, okay, is it possible to keep God's law? His answer here is, by faith, yes. Not on your own, not naturally. Try and do it on your own. No one is righteous, not even one. It's quite impossible to have a right standing with God if you try on your own merit to keep laws. You can't climb a ladder morally to get to God. You trust in Jesus. Yes. Yes, you can keep the law. Because when we come to Jesus and accept that free gift of righteousness that puts us in right standing with God, Jesus then changes us. He melts our hearts so we want to obey him. You might want to think of it this way. Uh, do you remember, I don't know if you've ever played with it at all, you know old red sealing wax? You know the sort of thing that, why would anyone have done that? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I used to work on elections, general elections, we're not having one, but general elections you had to use it, I'll explain why in a moment. But you know, if you, if you get the concept anyway, red sealing wax. So in olden times, kings then would have their big rings on with their um, uh, the stamp of office. And so they'd get their red, it comes in red blocks, their sealing wax, they'd melt a bit of wax onto the page, and they'd stamp their ring onto it. So you knew that it was coming from the king or someone important. You know, the people used to seal letters that way. You know, so you'd you'd seal your envelope, you'd drip some wax onto it, and seal it with your seal, and uh, then it was fixed, and you knew if anyone would tamper it. Just so, in a general election, when you have the ballot box, um, they're sealed at the beginning of the day, You drip wax onto them, you put a special seal in, so you know if anyone can break it. That is why I know. That makes sense. Now, I think you can think of it this way. If, um, once you've melted the wax, you can do anything to it. But beforehand, if you've just got this block of wax, 
and you try to um, sort of knock into it with a, a, a ring, well, you'll make a few superficial scrapes, but it won't really make any difference. Once you melt the wax onto the page and then push the ring in, it makes a very deep impression. It leaves the mark that it's meant to. We see, we can think of, um, we can think of the law, God's law, as that ring and the human heart as the wax. You see, initially what happens is, you know, you can come along with a, with a ring and try and block a, uh, whack a block of wax, and it might make a superficial impression, but it won't do anything. But when Jesus sends his spirit into our hearts, it melts the heart. His law comes along and can make a deep impression. We're genuinely changed and transformed. Well, if that doesn't work, think of it this way. A couple of equations try to work out. Uh, hopefully they'll come up and hopefully not in the um, invisible ink that we had earlier. Think of it this way. Uh, you have the law, but without the spirit, which is what Jew, uh, Paul is talking to the Jews here, they've got the Old Testament law, but without the spirit, you're not a true Jew. You're not a genuine believer. You have an uncircumcised heart. And actually you break the law because you try to keep it through self-effort. But take the law and add the spirit. So someone who trusts in the Lord Jesus and receives his spirit, then you're a true believer, a true Jew in the language he uses here. You have a circumcised heart and you keep the law by faith. So someone with a circumcised heart says, I do not keep the law in order to secure a relationship with God. I've given, I am given that relationship, just like a coat that goes around me. Jesus gives me his righteousness. Nothing changes that. But now also, my heart is changed. And I try to live differently now. And of course, it's never perfect. No Christian keeps the law perfectly, of course not. But there is a fresh desire which comes from a melted heart. And there's a fresh ability to resist sin, which comes from a melted heart by the Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus, it comes and transforms us. It gives us these well, circumcised hearts that Paul calls it here. So putting that together then, who's the true Jew? Who is the genuine believer who has a genuine relationship with God? course, these ethnic Jews would say, it's us. We have the law, we have circumcision, we have these two great things which make us Jews. And Paul says, no, they don't. They don't make you righteous with God. They don't give you a relationship with him. No one is righteous naturally. What you need to do, Jewish man, just like pagan man, just like moral man, you need to trust in Jesus. You need to receive a gift from him, a gift of righteousness, and your heart is transformed. And you'll live differently. And you'll try to keep the law. And you'll fail. But that's okay because you're righteous because of Jesus. But you have fresh desire. And a fresh ability to resist sin. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. He will transform our hearts by his spirit. So we can live in a way which pleases him. Now, of course, the best picture of this uh, is C.S. Lewis. Um, 
wonderful poet. But uh, In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, now quite a good film. Um, I don't know if anyone's seen it. You would have done if you've got kids of any kind. But um, towards the end of the film, or you may remember the book, uh, the battle is raging. So you've got uh, the Snow Queen versus uh, Peter, the eldest of the four children. Uh, she's bad, he's good, and they're fighting. But where's the great hero, Aslan, the lion? Well, he's off. He's off with Susan and Lucy. And he goes and raids the queen's lair, the white witch's lair. So he jumps over the walls. And if you remember, he jumps into a courtyard full of statues, stone statues, because that's what she does. Anyone annoys her, anyone tries to attack her, she just zaps them with her wand, and they turn into a stone statue. And so Aslan jumps in, and the girls watch him. What's he going to do? And he breathes. So he, he breathes onto a lion, it is, another lion first of all. And Lewis, he describes it beautifully. He says, you know what happens when you try and light a fire and there's a ball of newspaper and you light it with a lighter and nothing seems to have happened. All of a sudden, it blows up into life. Anyway, so the lion comes to life and then a dwarf and then a centaur because Aslan breathes life into them. Well, that, of course, is Lewis's picture of the Lord Jesus granting his spirit, bringing people to spiritual life and then transforming them. So what do these creatures all do? They all then follow Aslan into battle and uh, fight for him and defeat the white witch. When we trust in the Lord Jesus, he gives us righteousness, which we wear and we can't lose. But also he transforms our hearts. By his spirit, he melts our hearts of stone and gives us hearts which love him, which now really wants to keep his law, not because we think it makes us better, just because we love him. And for his sake, we want to keep his law. And that is fulfilling the law, says Paul. And we do it by faith in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we recognize that our hearts are so sinful. We need uh, chapter after chapter and week after week of Paul telling us that we're not righteous. We have no right standing with you. We need to be told that so many times to hear it. And we thank you for that reminder again tonight, that none of us naturally will ever be able to stand before you on our own merits. None of us can keep your law, your requirements for us. But we thank you that there is a way And that Paul gives us a hint of it now, even before he goes on to expand it in full. That when we trust in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives us righteousness and he transforms our hearts so that now we desire to live for you. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.